conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York, the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. The Pastor Well Podcast is dedicated to helping those who serve the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in their ministry. And today I am delighted to welcome Tim Challies with us, and we're going to be talking about preaching, theology, the proper use of the internet, a lot of different things. Tim, welcome to Pastor Well. Thanks for having me. Delighted that you're here. Tim has written five books. I will not name them all, but he is best known for his challies.com website. And uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. You you are Canadian. Canadian through and through. And yeah. uh, tell me how you came to know the Lord and how you got into ministry. Yeah. Raised in a Christian home, so had the delight of growing up around Christians. And probably when I was in my young teens, though possibly earlier, came to know the Lord or put my faith in Him. And that process, a lot of Christian kids or kids raised in a Christian home go through of just trying to separate out. Am I just following mom and dad or do I really believe this stuff myself? Um, One of five kids born to my parents, all of us know the Lord and follow him. Uh, Married now to Aileen. We've been married for 20 or so years, 20 years, and father of three kids. You, uh, You started your website in 2002, started blogging? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, now, uh, that was sort of the front wave of the the whole blogging phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, And your blog just became huge. It blew up. How'd that happen? Yeah. So I just started blogging. My parents had moved, and my sisters had all moved down to the States, and my brother, actually. My whole family moved to the States, and um, I just started writing some articles for them or just writing some of what was going on in life for them. This was before Facebook, right? So there wasn't that social media in which to do stuff like that. So I started a website, and along the way, I was part of a church that was just exploring some things, and I think um, starting to explore um, some theology I wasn't comfortable with, so I just started writing about it as my way of thinking out loud. And other people were in churches that were exploring those same ideas, and I think they started finding my site and just reading along, and somehow it became a voice of a a growing movement, I think, as people were maybe walking away from attractional kind of churches, and at that time there was the emerging church, there was this new reform movement, and a lot of people were just trying to figure out their grounding. Where's it all going? Yeah, where's it all going, and what do I believe? And so somehow I think I became just one of those people thinking out loud in public that other people could kind of grab hold on and say, yeah, I'm thinking some of those same things. So you were how old in 2002, 2003? How old was I? Yeah. Uh, That's a good question. Too young to uh, to be doing most of what I was doing, I think, but somewhere in my 20s. Well, uh, and I, how does it? How did it sort of catch fire? I mean, I, I can remember I'd never heard of you, and I remember somebody saying, "Have you read this blog?" And I looked, went there, and was so blessed and impressed <laughs> by what I saw. So, how did you get that critical mass? I think it was honestly just taking the brute force approach of writing every day. So I decided around the end of 2003, I think I would just write every day for a year, just to push myself as a as a kind of challenge. And that meant I had to keep finding ideas. I had to keep finding things to write about. You have to feed the monster. I had to feed the monster, yeah. Yeah. 
And so that just pushed me to read lots of books and grapple with lots of ideas. And then I really think that was a lot of it, just the the approach of putting a lot of content out there. And then over time, as you do that, you, you realize what other people are wondering, what questions they have, and uh, how you can speak to them and speak in some ways on behalf of them. Um, so yeah, it just sort of grew up very, very organically. Now people use the blogosphere as a platform builder. There's all these ways of using blogs to right. get what you want. But at the beginning, nobody knew that. We were just having fun, just exploring this new medium and uh, realizing you could interact with people all around the world. That was an, an amazing thing. What What would you say is distinct about your blog? Uh, well, certainly the just the sheer brute force of it is distinct. Uh, just the the volume of stuff I've written over the years, uh, yeah, but also I think that's astounding. Yeah, that little tagline of informing the reforming. I think so. I came out of a a very theological Dutch Reformed background. Though I'm not Dutch, I was part of the Dutch Reformed tradition and learned my catechisms and learned solid Reformed theology, and then ended up in an attractional church um, because the tradition I was in, while it was very theologically sound, it was almost anti-evangelism. And so I had it in my mind, you can't be reformed and evangelistic, and I wanted to be evangelistic. And so I sort of threw away my reformed roots, ended up in a very attractional church, and then had this real crisis of, I think, I think there's got to be a way you can integrate these two things where you can be evangelistic and you can be reformed. And so I think a lot of my explorations were were along those lines. Uh, so... Uh, Today, your blog, and you, if you go to your site, you've got all kinds of things up there. You've got uh, theological argument, basically, uh, where you present a perspective. You have a lot of things that are basically recommendations of what's out there that people should read. So my question is how you find time to keep up with everything. You, you've got to do a great amount of reading yourself yeah. in order to recommend things to people, and, that, and yet you're writing how do you do it? Well, it became a lot easier when it became my full-time job. So for a lot of the time, I was doing two things at once. Either I was, Back in the day, I was well, working in the tech field yeah, and yeah. doing the, the blogging on the side. And then I was asked to be a pastor in, in a church. And so I was an associate pastor there for about five years and blogging on the side. And then uh, the church was growing up and the blog was growing up. And I just realized I can only do one of these things. So I talked to the elders and we decided just to focus that my I would be best off just focusing on the blog. Still an elder at the church, but not on staff anymore. And so that just freed me up with time to really focus on that, to read lots and just there's so much stuff coming our way now, so many books and so many podcasts. And one of the things I think I can offer is I've got the time to sort through this. And a lot of the book reviews I did uh, back in the day, and I still do lots, but I think even more before is just really thinking of pastors who get asked how about this book? Or should I read this book? And I know a lot of pastors don't have time. Many bivocational pastors don't have time to be reading these books. So I thought, well, I can read them. They get sent to me anyways. I can read them. I can offer reviews of them and maybe just resource pastors so they can at least say, I don't know, but I read this guy and I, I kind of trust what he says. So why don't you read his review and tell me what you think of that? Do you read quickly? Are you able to digest a book pretty quickly? Yeah, at least enough to uh, to write a review of it. And the more you read, the easier it gets to read. And that's especially true when you read in one field and you realize everybody's just quoting the same three or four original writers anyway. So if you've read those people, I mean, how many books on Christian marriage do you really need? And then once you've read five or six, is the seventh or eighth really going to be that new and, and different? So you can read them very quickly after a time, which helps. How many hits a day do, does your blog get? 
I have no idea. I don't pay attention to the you statistics. You really don't? I have no idea. Yeah, it's like I asked Tom Schreiner how many books he had written. He was yeah. like, I don't know. No idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I don't pay attention. There was a time I was really captive to the statistics, and I found that very discouraging, just very spiritually weighty. And so I just stopped paying attention. It was very, very freeing. So there, one of the, the problems with the Internet is it, it gives you a number for everything. The same thing that happens in churches, right? You can count heads and associate the success of your church with the number of people in it. And I think blogs are much the same. There's some great writers out there, great bloggers who are honoring the Lord and doing their thing, but they're not getting the readers. But I still think they're doing really, really good work. You are still a an elder at uh, Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto. Yep, I am. Uh, and do you teach weekly? Not weekly. How often? Uh, do you mean by teach? Do you mean preach? Teach and preach. Yeah. What, what, yeah. When you're up in front of people, opening the Bible and teaching something. Yeah, maybe once a month or so. I tend to do a little bit more of that on the road now, and part of the reason for that is we've got some younger guys in our church who have needed to get their first fifty or hundred sermons under their belt. And so I've had to sort of step out to let them do some of that. Uh, and how often are you preaching, like, like on the road or? Uh, two, at least a couple times a month, I'd be preaching somewhere. When you go on the road and preach, are you doing new stuff, or is it something you've done before? Almost always something I've done before. Yeah, I like to prepare my sermons for my church because I think that brings an authenticity to them. So even a conference message, I'd like to prepare it as a sermon and preach it to my church because I know those people and I want to make sure that what I'm saying is reaching real people rather than this this crowd of people I don't know. So I can think about people I know and love and what they're going through in life and how this text would speak to them. Then I might change it a little bit or if it's right. not a, a church setting, I might change it to be more of a conference message. But at least then I know how it's spoken to people I really know, love, care for. I, I am exactly that way. Yeah, uh, I think of it even in terms of faithfulness. I think you know, Buck Run is my local church, and right. they deserve my best and my freshest, and everybody else gets leftovers, right. uh, basically, because that, that's where I have to concentrate my energy. I think that's a healthy thing. They also get your worst sermons, the ones that you wouldn't dare take on the road, right? Well, yeah, but I don't like to think about that. Because <laughs> sometimes you preach a message and you, you pour your heart and soul into it, and you just realize it's a dud in the end. And the Lord may still use it, but you realize, no, it wasn't my best effort. And then so your church, who loves you, is able to just kind of laugh and say, well, try again next week, and, yeah. and you move on. But it, it allows you to develop sermons for real people, and then you take the best of them and the ones that really have affected people and you got good feedback on, and you, you take those ones to other churches. I'm curious uh, how much you think about delivery. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I'm going to go somewhere with this because okay. as a teacher of preaching, I see a generational challenge. Uh, so I Tell me how you think about delivery. Do you think it's important? Are you in the camp that says, no, that's irrelevant. As long as you get up and just give what the text says, that's your job. You don't need to think about delivery. Or do you think delivery matters? Delivery certainly matters. Um, Absolutely. I think it it matters how you present your sermon. And um, working with young guys, we've had to talk about you can't just yell for 45 minutes. You can't have everything at the same pitch, you've got to vary your pitch. Or if, if everything's in bold, all caps, nothing's in bold, all caps, right? right so that's right. you've got to learn how to how to do the ebb and flow. You've got to have somebody who loves you enough to tell you about your weird ticks and the other things you do that you're, you, you have no self-awareness 
of that. Right. That's why we have social media as well, so people can mock you when you speak at a public event and <laughs> have some tick. And, the video and does not lie. The video does not lie, neither do the mean people out there. So, um, But yeah, I think it really matters. In, in terms of learning it, I think what when I was starting out, and I'm a huge introvert and I'm very afraid of being in front of crowds and, and all of that. So it was very, very hard for me to go in front of a group of people. It felt like real bearing my soul. Um, but what I would do is just try and find one thing to work on next time and just work on that. So starting to free myself from holding onto the pulpit for dear life or, um, you know, trying to move a little bit, make better eye contact and just every sermon add one new thing. Well, that's funny. I mean, it sounds like you've taken my preaching class because mm-hmm. I, this is exactly the advice I give. I give them nine communication skills they need to master, but I say, you know, you can't think of nine things at once. But right. if every time you get up, you think, okay, I really need to push that vocal range today and not just carve out a comfortable 20% of my range. I need to push that. And today I'm going to think about that. Right. Yeah. Uh, now the generational challenge, though, is the, the guys that I'm teaching, these millennials that have grown up on, you know, phone screens and computer screens and uh, even, you know, they're doing video games with somebody else who knows where in the world. But they're more verbal but less oral. I think than any generation in history, they they read a lot. They're communicating in a lot of ways, but not orally typically. Right. So when I get them in class, I have guys that can write. I mean, if you read their blogs, they're they're eloquent, hmm. but when they stand up in front of people, they default to this very uncomfortable, uh, ill at ease persona, hmm. and I think that's a challenge to preaching today. Do you do you do you see that? That would make good sense, yeah. And and just the communication itself or verbal communication itself being something of a lost art. Um, when you go back in time and you see that people used to listen to longer sermons or people go and right. listen to a true political discourse and all of that, and they would sit and listen to the Lincoln-Douglas debates for hours at a time and actually absorb that information. That seems crazy for us today when we're used to just these very, very short snippets and not right. a whole lot more. Yeah, the... Uh, the the letter writing of the past is very similar. Yeah. They, they, they wrote these beautiful, eloquent letters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, in fact, I discovered uh, Judson's letters uh, about uh, the do- the death of his daughter Gracie. Okay. Uh, on your blog. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I've I've used that as mm. an illustration in in a sermon before, but just to read the how articulate, you know, uh, that's a lost art, and right. I fear that we're losing the oral communication skills in a very similar way. Yeah, and so much of that, it, it, it has to be learned through example, but it does also have to be taught. So just the the erect posture right. as being not just so you look better, and there's that, that thing that happens in the pulpit when somebody stands with a commanding presence, you respond to that, but also that just as you get into that posture, you're better equipped now to take deep breaths and to to use that vocal range so you can speak very loudly, you can speak very quietly. Uh, but a lot of that comes out of, out of good posture, out of just knowing how to be in front of people. Well, you know, you are sort of iconic as a blogger. I think it's really important that you say these things. <laughs> All right. Uh, and and highlight good delivery, you know, as I, I know you do. Uh, what are some of your greatest joys in serving as an elder at a local church? I mean, you have a really vast audience that tunes into what you're saying and thinking, and yet you stay connected to the local church. Uh, how does that inform what you do and 
Yeah. What are the joys of that? Oh, just so many joys. And when you're in a church, you understand you're in the one thing that really matters so much more than any institution or any blog right. or seminary or anything else, right? It's That's the, right. It's the local church is where it's at. And the more I spend time elsewhere, the more I, I just come to love the local church. And it's the wisdom of God in giving us the local church as that place, as that center of our, really a center of our lives in some ways, certainly the center of our ministry. So. Yeah. I find it it's so important, and it's important to be around people who love you but aren't impressed by you. And so as somebody who has a bit of a public side, there's lots of people who are impressed by me, but they don't know me, so that doesn't really mean anything. Um, but to be around people who, who deeply love you and will speak to you in love, who will encourage you in your hard times, who will um, who will I mean, go all the way up to and including discipline if they need to out of love for you, it's just so, so important to, yeah. to have that. It is. Uh, I have been pastor at Buck Run for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Nobody there really gives a rip that I have a Ph.D. in Greek or that I'm dean of Southern Seminary. I right. mean, there, there's a there's a delight they have in it, but it's just not impressive after, you know, the, that initial right. – uh, they know it. Okay, now they're over it. Uh, what I find, the, the greatest source of my credibility with them really is my marriage. Mm-hmm. They – they see the way I treat my wife. They see our relationship. And that goes a lot further with people that I'm preaching to than any academic credential right. Right. because it's it's real life. Yeah. Uh, you've been married how long? 20. Just coming up on 21 years, yeah. So uh, how does your – does your wife read what you write? Does, she does not. She does not? No. Not typically, no. Uh, it's not a big interest of hers. Uh, well, that does that keep you humble? I mean, is it the fact yeah. that she's not impressed with that? <laughs> how does how does that play? Uh, it doesn't really bother me. I, I don't think she's really read my books either, and it's not because she doesn't love me or anything. Right. She's just not really one of her her big interests. So huh. she reads some of it, and um, if I ever ask her, I'll often ask her, can you read this and tell me what you think of it? Or I'm going to write this to this audience. I think you might have a good idea of what they would be thinking. So I certainly rely on her. Um, but no, her job is more to hold down the fort, especially as I travel and and do other things. She takes care of the home and family and, and is happy doing it. How about your kids? Do they do they read, read you? Do they react to what you write? Uh, my son does a little bit, I think. Um, he's 19. My daughter, who's 16, she I think she likes my stuff on Instagram pretty instantly, so I, she probably gets a notification or something. Uh, my 13-year-old is not, not reading anything I, I write, I don't think. Uh, there's nothing like our, our children to keep us humble. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, you were saying earlier, just talking about the difference between public ministry and church ministry, I think there's way too many people who would be content to fail at local church ministry if only they could succeed at public ministry. Yeah, I think you're right. Right? And and that's exactly backwards. I would consider my life a complete failure if lots of people out there said, what a great man, and people in the local church said, well, we don't know him, or you wouldn't believe what he's actually like. So if I can yeah. if I can succeed in in my local church, if I can have those people say, no, this, this man is authentic. This man loves the Lord. This man loves his his wife, he loves his children. The rest doesn't really matter, does you're, it? Yeah, you're right. Uh, I was talking to somebody earlier about uh, A.W. Pink, and right. I, I knew people who knew him. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my life overlapped that much with, with people who had known him in their youth, and my dad preached in a church that he had basically destroyed at one point yeah. uh, in uh, Kentucky, and 
I, I look at Pink. You know, you read Pink. Sometimes you know, he just lifts you up yeah. to, the, to the heavens with what he writes. Right. And yet uh, there was uh, such a, a almost a, a trail of bodies left behind right. by places that he, he served. Right. But then I know some guys who could never write a book. And yet the authenticity, the way they preach, the way they glorify Christ and just their daily walk. Right. They're the people I want to be with and be influenced by. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right. This is the danger of living in an era, an era of YouTube and uh, where everybody, everything's public. And right. we really want the, the likes on Instagram and uh, the viewers on YouTube. And, and yeah. sometimes the authenticity is not what we're going for. It's a danger. Right. And you can treat the church like the minor leagues where you develop people so that right. they can get this public platform. They can go into the major leagues, which is either some mega, mega church or it's a conference circuit or something. Right. But that's that's exactly backwards. That's, it is exactly backwards. And that danger exists at the seminary too. You know, as being in the seminary world for the last uh, 22 years uh, as a professor and before that as a student, I've seen exactly the same thing, that sometimes we are we can be in danger of forgetting the local church and thinking that the academic world is the real world. Right, yeah. When it's not. The The church can exist without the seminary, but not the seminary. The seminary cannot exist without the church. Right. We should never forget that. Right. You know, another danger of the Internet, of course, and one that you've written about a lot, is pornography. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you about that, uh, just the, how... Uh, grievous it is what what pornography does uh, can you s- speak to someone who's listening to us that really has a desire to serve and honor Christ they want to be a pastor or and perhaps they are but they are caught in the grip of pornography what what would you say to them well the first thing would be don't be a pastor um, and I think I've heard Dr. Moeller say they almost assume now that when people come to Southern Seminary, yeah. men come, they have either some pretty deep history or they're still currently somehow involved or seriously tempted by pornography. So th- it is that prevalent. It, yes, it is. And I think just over the last few years, we've realized it's not just a guy problem. There's more and more women who are identifying that as a struggle in their own lives and seeking help and counseling and and all of that. So it's, it's becoming this, or it has become this, very, very right. prominent issue. And no, I'm glad to, I would be glad to hear anyone say, I really want to get into ministry, but there's this. I would say, great, deal with that first. Uh, there maybe was a time where we thought that pornography was a sin. People could just kind of get over and, you know, just stop looking at that and, and that's okay. We'll keep you here in seminary or in, in the ministry. But I think we've realized that it's a, a sin where there's very deep patterns, very deep roots, and it takes often takes a very long time to dig those out and really prove repentance in that area, to prove that you've truly mortified that sin. So uh, allowing people time and patience to, to work through uh, that, that sin and to, to, again, prove their repentance, I think is very, very important, not to rush them back into ministry. Yeah, my wife teaches uh, a marriage and family class to the wives of seminary students and pastors. And when she first started that more than 20 years ago, uh, you know, she allows them to submit questions, and the number one question that would be submitted toward the end of the semester would be, my husband just wants to have sex all the time. How can I either match his desire or tone him down a bit? You know, some variation of that. About uh, pro- almost half the questions submitted were of that order. 
Fast forward now two decades, and the number one question submitted, uh, in fact, up to sometimes 70%, is my husband never wants to have sex. What can I do to get him interested? (laughs) Now, there's only one thing that's happened in those two decades, and it's the ubiquitous nature of pornography. And it's it's terrifying to me because how are – I told you that I, I think the number one uh, credibility that I have with my church is my relationship with my wife. If a pastor and his wife uh, have this problem at the very core of who they are because of pornography, how are they going to minister right. to the church uh, over the course of a lifetime? I mean, th- this is a devastating issue. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and it, it's a, it's an issue that you're inviting if you if you're a, a pastor or your husband who's looking at pornography you need to understand what you're inviting into your home um, you know we don't want to go all Frank Peretti here but you really are inviting evil into your home through that yeah. and it, it's it's evil your children discover it's evil your wife discovers but it's just you're inviting this satanic force into your own life and into your own home and you can't expect that you can just add this little sin to your life and and it won't affect others it's there's a reason pastors so often identify anger with pornography you know you're talking to a man and, and his wife says he's angry all the time he's angry all the time well my first question is are you looking at pornography because it right. does something to your soul and it, it just there's this ripple effect it just th- that sin just ripples out across life and across the church it's a dark depraved terrible sin yeah it but, is and, and uh it it is going to affect every part of your being i think one of the things that has helped me is exactly what you just said i think to myself look uh can I, if I engage in this, what effect is this going to have on my sons? Mm-hmm. What kind of men are they going to be? Now, my grandchildren, what am I, I bringing in and this destructive force? Do I want to be the guy that invited this in? And you really have to see it in those terms that if – and I don't want to make this sound like um, a works-oriented moralism, but I do ask myself that if the holiness – and the godliness of my family depends on me, uh, then I've, I can't let down. I can't give up on this area. And, yeah. and I just sort of convinced myself that it, in a very real sense, does depend on me. Yeah. I'm now a patriarch. I've got, you know, five grandchildren. Yeah. And uh, this, this is a deadly, deadly force in yeah. our lives that, uh, that I fear. I think we could agree that the uh, the Apostle Paul was a particularly humble man, not an arrogant, flippant kind of individual. I think some of the humblest things he said are those statements, imitate me or be imitators of me. I think it was his humility that would allow him to invite people to say, be around me, watch what I do, listen to my words, then just do stuff like that and you'll be okay. I love that he had the humility to say something like that. And what a tragedy if you're living your life in this way, but you've got this area that's closed off, and, and then you can't say, be imitators of me. You're not modeling godliness to people. You're, you're, modeling, the, you're modeling depravity. So man, I, I just love that he gave us that example, and I want that to be true in my life. I'm sure you want it to be true in yours, where you can say, just be yeah. around me. There's no guile. There's nothing I'm hiding from you in my life. Just be around me. Imitate me. You'll be okay. I do want to live that way. You know, this is why my my wife has the right to look at my phone anytime she yeah. wants. She can read my text messages. She can look at my email. She can look at my my uh, browser. Anything she wants. I, I want to be an open book, and 
I just don't want to be the guy that has fear that my wife is going to find something right. in my life that will embarrass or humiliate me. Right. To the contrary, I, I want to be an open book. Right. Uh, and that's just a it's a good way to live, I believe. Yeah, and I wouldn't say this is like some advanced trick in Christianity. No. This is just basic Christian living, is to open your life to someone else and, and be honest and be open with them and say, if you see things, confront me. And here's my phone. If you're, if you're at all concerned, feel free. And uh, I just think this is the way we have to be living with our spouses as, as elders before other pastors. Just have this openness and this ask me questions drill down into my life, do what you need to do, but I want to live a life of holiness. So whatever yeah. it takes for you to be assured that I am and um, to have the confidence that you can ask me those those hard questions, just there, there's such joy and freedom there. We shouldn't have anything to hide. Are you ever accused of being a prude? Like I remember you wrote, uh, yeah. you, wrote you yeah, would yeah. not watch Stranger Things when Stranger Things right. was uh, all the rage and yeah. you wrote that you, yeah. you watched the first episode right. and turned it off. Yep. So how do people react and respond to that? Oh, people are pretty upset with it. Yeah. Really? The reason I they wouldn't watch Yeah, oh yeah, slightly. The reason I wouldn't watch Stranger Things to add to that is because it involved this pretty heavy scene between what are essentially two young adults or two teenagers. And I just realized how much of the sexuality that we see on TV is actually people who are very young. Nobody wants to no offense, watch like senior citizens doing a, a sex scene in a film or in a TV show. It's it's young people. Yeah. So here I am with children around that age, w- recreationally watching people doing their absolute utmost to make it seem like they're having some sort of sexual relationship with one another. And I was just cut. Like, what am I doing as an older man being entertained by these young people who are getting naked or getting nearly naked or trying to make me think they're naked and having some sort of sexual relationship? I, I just couldn't do it. And so I had been accused of being a prude for, for such things. So yeah, I just wanted people to think about that, of what we're actually doing when we participate in those, by watching those things. Uh, do you worry that uh, the millennial generation, well, actually not just them, even uh, my generation, every, every all of us, uh, have become desensitized to sin and uh, in, especially in the entertainment world? Yeah, very much so. And I, I don't know that we – we need to guard against legalism, and that's immediately what will happen. You're prude, you're legalistic, whatever, and, and I understand that. We don't want to go maybe back to those days where we just got rid of all entertainment because of the guilt by association or something. Right. Um, but, yeah, I do think it's an area of very serious compromise. And I think if we were to look at it objectively, kind of just step back out of it and, you know, we don't need to be entertained all the time. We don't we don't have any God-given right to four hours of Netflix in the evening. And I think a lot of the reason we watch so much bad stuff is we just watch so much stuff. Yeah. So we run out of clean and good stuff, and we just start watching other stuff as well. Um, and there's also this idea in the Christian world that truly spiritually mature people can watch anything and be unaffected by it. So if, if I was really a, a solid Christian, this kind of sexuality wouldn't entice me, it wouldn't bother me, I could watch it completely impassively. Problem to me is that also sounds kind of like the description of what happens when you have a seared conscience. So yeah, that's right. I, I don't want to <laughs> I want to be pretty careful it, there. And it ignores what happens to the the people who are creating that right. in their lives. Right. And Yep. the stumbling block that this is to others, even even if right. you yourself are not tempted. Right. Yeah, and I've written a lot about that. Just if that was your wife acting out that sex scene or if that was your daughter. Like if my daughter was in a film and she had acted out this really passionate sex scene, 
I would be so offended if my friends were watching that. I would be just devastated to know my friends had recreationally gone to the theater, spent their money to watch my daughter doing that. So doesn't then love for our neighbor dictate that I wouldn't watch somebody else's daughter doing that? It just yeah. it just seems so simple to me. Uh, what you are describing in many ways is a, I think you are a pastor theologian. <laughs> uh, and frankly, I think that's what we need to be, pastors who are shepherds at heart, connected to local church, thinking with a theological mind. Uh, what does that model of pastor theologian mean uh, to you, and how, how can pastors strive to be that? Well, I think pastors, a big job of, of the pastor is to just lead out ahead of your, your people, right? To mm-hmm. One of the big challenges of being a pastor is to just keep growing in godliness, right? So, I mean, it, grant me this, but, you know, you don't want to be surpassed by your people. You don't want to be the least godly person in your church. You also probably won't be the godliest. There will always be godlier yeah. people. But so you don't want to be in the middle of the pack either. <laughs> right, right. You just need to keep growing and growing yeah. and excelling in godliness so you have something to give to your people, so you have a way of leading them, a way of guiding them, something to call them to that you can say, imitate me. And so as a pastor, I think you're you're, you're leading people that way, but you're applying theology. You're taking... Um, it, you're taking theology and applying it to the real situations in life, whether that's um, theological conundrums that are coming up in the life of the church or in theological discourse, or whether it's just as simple as, what do I do in this situation? How do I honor God? How do I please God in this stage in life? All those very nitty-gritty type questions. Well, Tim Challis, you have been, a, I believe, a real gift to the Lord's church because the Lord has used you to inform, to educate, I think to call people to sound theology as well as to godliness and holiness. And and uh, may I compliment you, you really seem to have maintained a humility even with all of the readership and uh, viewership that you have. I'm, I'm grateful for you. You've been a, a real blessing to so many and especially to me. I thank you for being with us today on Pastor Well. Uh, I always like to conclude my conversation with a I call a twinkling of an eye around, just a, right. a series of quick questions. Uh, what is your favorite website? My favorite website? Oh, boy. I read the National Post. That's Canada's conservative-ish news source, so I visit that often. All right. What, what, what preachers do you most enjoy listening to? Uh, Paul Martin, who's the pastor of my church. That's the one I listen to most and the one I prefer to listen to any day of the week. But for all that, I don't listen to a ton of preaching. It's not my favorite favorite medium. So Sunday, yes, during the week, I'd rather read a book than listen to podcasts. Uh, gotcha. All right. If if you could take your wife anywhere in the world this weekend and money were not an object, where would you go? Ireland, Switzerland, or Scotland. Well, have you ever been to any of them? All of them. Oh, so you want to go back? Yeah. That's great. She's never been to Ireland. We've done the others together. She's eager to see Ireland. Do you have a favorite sports team? Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, so you baseball fan? Yeah. Like in stats geek, that kind of thing? Not so much. I've followed it closely, but just as time has gone on, it's one of those things I just don't have the time to it, really put into it the way I once did. Yeah, so, that's, there are a lot of stats in baseball. There are, but the, the beauty of baseball is you never have to give it your full attention. So you can, you can do almost anything. I think you could have personal devotions during baseball, and it's just so slow and so yeah. quiet. You could totally focus on your devotions and not be, okay, and still, ridiculous example, but yeah, it's such a good thing to have on while you action. do something else. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Uh, essay or short story? Essay. Uh, driving or flying? Oh, I love them both, but driving probably. Mac or PC? 
Mac. Uh, your favorite genre to preach? Uh, I just preached Revelation and thoroughly enjoyed it. I just really? preached a sermon from Revelation and thoroughly enjoyed it, but I've never taken on the whole book. You may be the only non-dispensationalist I've ever heard <laughs> say that. Uh, if you could ma- wave a magic wand and make inter- the Internet vanish as though it had never been here, would you do it? I sure would. You would? Yep. Fascinating. As is as has been this conversation with you, Tim, thank you so much for being here today on Pastor Well. And thanks to all of you who have tuned in. If you've not yet subscribed, make sure you do so on YouTube or on your favorite internet app. And uh, make sure you don't miss an episode. I'll look forward to seeing you again on Pastor Well. <laughs>